You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Good day to you and welcome to Conversations with Shonda. I have a fantastic guest that's with us today. And Artika, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself to our listening audience. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. My name is Artika Roller. I am currently the executive director of the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Um, we're also known as MNCASA. And we are a coalition and a network of over 66 programs providing direct service to victims of, and survivors of sexual violence across the entire state of Minnesota. We're one of five coalitions that provide crime victim services. As we enter into this conversation, I recognize the sensitivity of it. And so I will just ask all of our listeners to just protect your, your heart around this. And if you need to step away, step away. We invite you in because it's such an important topic. But we realize that there are many, many people that have been impacted by sexual violence. And we want to be careful about how we enter into this conversation and make sure that our listeners are well. What led you to work in this space? It definitely is a calling. You know, I grew up, I'm from the Twin Cities. I grew up in the Rondo community in St. Paul, and it was a beautiful community, rich with activists and teachers and mentors. And I grew up in this community that was really involved. I lived by the Hickman family, who are long-term community activists in our community, and so always engaged in how community works, how do we make things better, look different, uplift and support one another. But also I grew up in a community that I was exposed to violence and gender-based violence. And it wasn't uncommon for me to um, see that in, in community. And so really knew that I wanted to do something to support community and have it work in a different way. My background was in business and then decided, I don't know if this is for me. I think the field of social work is what, where I want to go and what I want to do. And what I found myself was that working with women and families was my jam or was my niche. I could do this and not feel like I was other in people, but do it in a non-judgmental, supportive way because I grew up and came from community. That's how I kind of ended up here. It was in this work. It was like I could stay in business or I could really do the work that I believe that I was called to do. And so started with sex trafficking and exploitation, anti-sex trafficking and exploitation work. Did that for many years and then moved to the world of domestic violence, spent some time at the county doing child well-being and child protection work. And then about three and a half years ago, landed at Mancasa, where there was a call for Black women to lead. And so knew that I didn't want to run for office, but I did have the experience to do this work and lead. And so that's how I ultimately ended up at Mancasa. Can you say more about Mancasa and sort of how it emerged? Because this was not something that existed years ago. As a matter of fact, we weren't really paying attention to these issues. And so can you say a little bit more about the genesis and the origin of, of this work? 
Yeah, so Mincasa really is embarking on its 45th year. And so we've been around a little while and we really did come out of the movement around protecting women and children, gender-based violence. Started grassroots organization. We had some community leaders that said, hey, we need to do some work around this and provide some support for victims and survivors in a multi-system level way. So not only direct service, but also with policy and advocacy. So that macro level work as well. And so Mencasa really formed and our former mayor, Darren Sells Belton, was instrumental in the movement at that time and helped, was one of the founding mothers of uh, Mencasa. And so we have a long history of community activism and then as well as advocacy in a multi-system level way. Sharon Sellsbelt, one of the founding mothers of the organization, was there a catalytic event that led to the founding? What really brought the coalition together? Right. My understanding, it was just that we were bringing awareness not only to sexual assault, but intimate partner violence and the recognition that the systems weren't working well when there was a victim of violence. And so that's from the first contact with maybe law enforcement. They really didn't have protocol. And if someone was receiving medical care. So then also as a community outpour to provide services for victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault or under the umbrella of what we call gender-based violence. What role do you believe that system, law enforcement, the criminal justice system plays in perpetuating the violence or in helping us to solve and support those victims that have been perpetrated by the violence? So a lot of times the first people that have contact with the victim and survivors will be law enforcement. And we do have law enforcement that we train, that we collaborate with, that are partners in um, working towards a better response to the needs of victims and survivors. And then we also have had some missteps recently When someone has um, been a victim of sexual assault or violence, they might decide that they want to get a sexual assault kit and pursue a criminal justice response. And we, and recently in the news, we haven't um, just had that response from our system that would process those kits in a timely manner. There was a Minneapolis, they had lost about 1,700 kits or 1,700 kits were found about a, a year ago. And then um, we've had a backlog and there was a whole expose called Denied Justice that Star Tribune did to really document that people are not getting the criminal justice response or, or the legal justice response or law enforcement wasn't moving those cases along. And so we are currently working with those systems to try to put together practice, protocol, and responses that will result in getting um, kids tested and also getting services to people that need services. So it is, you know, it's on the spectrum. There is some response happening, and then we have all the way on the other spectrum where there is resistance to doing what we know we should be doing within our systems to provide the responses that victims and survivors need. 
One of the things that we're working on right now is revising the turnaround time for our sexual assault kits. What we are seeing is that we have about an eight-month turnaround time after someone submits to a sexual assault exam. The gold standard would be a 30-day turnaround time. Now, we hear from our systems the increase in violent crimes, the lack of staff or capacity to do those tests has been an issue in the past. But we're really saying, and what we're trying to push forward legislatively, is that 90 days probably should be the cap. And we're asking for some accountability from our crime labs around having a 90-day turnaround time. And there's definitely some system resistance to making that happen and ensuring that happen. But the system has a responsibility. We were already behind in testing kits. And then to continue that backlog is not the commitment that our system made around getting these kids tested. And so we have supported, you know, additional funding, additional asks around building up their capacity to get these tests done. But now we're asking for them to have some level of accountability in our, and, and report out. Let us know what's happening in community and if they're meeting the timelines that they that we're proposing. Does the resistance from the system simply look like the response of we're short on staff or like, is that what resistance looks like? Or what does system resistance look like? How does that show up in your work? How it's showing up in this particular case is that the ball keeps on moving or what they're asking us to do changes. So for example, we what we first heard was that they didn't have the funding and the capacity to support it. And we said, we would support your legislative ask for funding to get up to speed in order to get this tested. Once we supported that, the governor wrote that amount into the budget. Then there was another move to say, well, hey, if we prioritize sexual assault kits, we won't be able to test any other thing. The only thing that we would be able to test is sexual assault kit. What we see with the system resisting is that the reason why they can't test changes. Once we resolve one problem, then we have another problem that will get in the way of, of testing. And so we've been trying to work with our local lab, the BCA, to figure out what would be some type of compromise. But the end result is that we have victims and survivors that have submitted to a sexual assault exam and they're not receiving test results within a reasonable amount of time. And again, gold standard would be 30 days. We put into our ass 90 days. This is not anything new. There's other states that have this mandate as well. Their pushback would be that they're not meeting their timelines, even if they have a mandate. And our response to that is, but they're not eight months behind with testing new kids. They might be 30 days behind and 90 days behind, but we are falling almost last in the United States around turnaround times for testing. And you know, in Minnesota, we pride ourselves on being the best and getting things done efficiently. We are just surprised that there has just been so much resistance to making this happen. Again, we have a commitment to victims and survivors, and we need to live up to that commitment. On that particular point, if there are people that are listening in, in our state that wanted to do 
um, more on that? Is there something that they should be doing? Should they be going to the city council to talk about that, to the state? Like what, what, what actions can be taken? So it is a state asked. You can actually go to MNCASA's website. So that would be mncasa.org. You can look at our um, website under policy, and then you can sign up for our action alerts. So we'll be sending out an alert pretty soon, really stating how you can get in contact with your legislator and make this ask. So can we talk a little bit about the missing and murdered African-American women and girls work that you're leading? How did that come about? And what should we know about that initiative that you are uh, working on? You know, this really actually was an initiative that was driven by Representative Ruth Richardson, who authored this bill. This work is just such an important work. We are at a critical position within our community around missing and murdered Black women and girls. And nationally, there is data that says that there's over 60,000 missing Black women and girls in the United States. And Black women are more likely, twice um, likely than their white peers to be victims of homicide. And what we were hearing from community was once they identified that someone was missing, law enforcement was not responding. So we had a case here and actually Lakeisha Lee was the co-chair of this committee and her sister, Brittany Clarity, was murdered, I think, in 2013. And when they first called law enforcement, um, law enforcement was saying things like, you know, she might have ran away. You know, she might be somewhere and just doesn't want to contact you. And the family was saying that we talk several times a day, multiple times a day. We have not heard from her. Something is wrong. And they wouldn't take the family's word. The other thing that happened is that Miss Clarity, Brittany and Lakeisha's mother, actually was the one that tracked down her vehicle and told law enforcement that it was at the impound lot. And so she did her own investigation to find her daughter. And unfortunately, Brittany was murdered and she was found in her car. But the heart-wrenching thing about that was that Ms. Clarity felt like if you would have responded when I called you the first time, there may have been a possibility that you would have found her before she died. We just hear stories like that over and over again of not being taken serious, not knowing where the resources are. Who do you go to if um, you experience a tragedy like this? There was a legislative mandate that there would be a task force to investigate what we should be doing as a system and then come up with some recommendations. And so there were victim service advocates folks that were impacted, legislators, law enforcement. So there was a whole group of folks that came together to do this work. But what was really instrumental in this, there was also an advisory task force, an advisory task force of Black women that had been impacted, and they oversaw the project. That was different. It's like we had system folks, but we also had community folks that have been impacted that informed the recommendations that came out. And then it was led by Dr. Brittany Lewis, a Black woman, research in action. And so we really centered the voices of Black women, victims and survivors, and the work that the task force did. Out of that task force 
came um, recommendations to our legislators that included an office of murdered and missing African-American women that would help with unsolved cases, that would also support families through the steps of working within the system. There was other recommendations around training, hiring, retaining, and supporting Black staff, because just not hiring, but what do we do to support staff to do this work? As you mentioned in the beginning, this is heavy work that you take home with you. So how do we support people to continue to do this work? And then there were several other recommendations that came out of the work. Right now, the recommendations were moved forward and we are looking at having a mandated, legislative mandated office for murdered and missing African-American women. And I'm pretty sure that it will pass. So it's in both of the omnibus bills and we're looking forward to celebrating once it passes and there's an opportunity for us to start working on opening the office. Such important work. There were two things that I was thinking about. One was, I don't know if you're familiar with this, and I cannot recall where this project came from, but there's a journalism project where you can put in your race and your age and what state you live in. And what it will do is it will tell you, so if I went missing, how many media articles or mentions would I have? And I remember my comparison, my age, my race, my gender compared to a young white woman was like, I would have maybe 13 news articles versus like 27 articles during the same period based on the statistics um, and and the disparities that happens in media and reporting when women of color um, go missing or when older women go missing. Yeah, I agree with that. And we um, see that as well. What I've seen though recently is that through social media, we're taking that back and we're making sure that we're uplifting, centering, and highlighting the stories of Black women and girls. We know that, we understand that, and then also understand that then we have to do that work ourselves. One of the ways in which they're taking back, so you're just touching on the second thought that I was having as you were talking, which is around Amber Alerts. I do see, you know, someone's 12-year-old is missing and on social media, it will get shared. But I don't often hear the Amber Alert or there's questions on why not an Amber Alert in this community where we hear them in this community or why did it take so long? Is there work around the disparities that exist there or is there in fact disparity? Maybe I should not make that assumption. I have thoughts, but... (laughs) And in my work that we're seeing a disparity... Um, around those Amber Alerts. And that's something that we've been calling out. And this office will actually work to ensure that people that are missing will get those Amber Alerts. They'll also be working with media to make sure that these stories are uplifted. So the Office of Murdered and Missing African-American Women would have a role in making sure that our stories are elevated and not only elevated, that we bring um, our women and girls home. You know, in those instances, you know, I always think about the mothers, the fathers, the loved ones of their relatives that are are missing and and just the level of worry that I cannot even imagine. Right. I mean, I remember I had, you know, I've got five kids. At some point they all ran away, whether or not it was to the yard or to the basement or around the block or whatever. But like there's this moment of panic of like, where is my child that I've experienced in like these fleeting instances 
Um, but I cannot imagine just not knowing. So as we're listening or whether or not we have someone who is going through this or that we know, like what are some things that people can do to be supportive? Are there best practices there or steps that we can um, ensure that they're being treated with respect and dignity? And what would you what, what would you recommend? You know, I would say reach out to your advocacy organizations. Um, I've been doing this work for about 20 years. And a lot of times your advocate, the advocacy organizations will have someone who knows how and has a personal relationship with folks within different systems or different areas of expertise that they can guide you. Also, I, I remember the Clarity family, and they were definitely in that situation and didn't know where to go and what to do. And at that time, the Pride Program, the Family Partnership, actually, you know, had their communication person help them with things like um, talking to the media. Advocate went to court with them and helped them kind of navigate through that process. Um, and so I would say, reach out to your local crime victim service organization and they can help you kind of navigate or at least get you started with the things that you will need to feel supportive. As a community member, I think that um, we let families guide us. We reach out and say, I'm here, if you need me, or if there is anything that you would need, let me know and I'll help and support you. And I think that's the best thing that we can do for families. I don't know why this popped in my mind, but I thought about um, Ben Crump, right? Or Al Sharpton and people are yeah. like, you know, they, they always show up in the media. They're always running. They're always finding like there's all kinds of sides of how people resonate with the work that they do on behalf of families. You either love it or you don't love it. But I think that one of the, the things that I've learned in my interactions with, with them in multiple ways has been that part of why they do that is to keep um, the issue in public. Because if we don't keep raising awareness, then we don't make progress. And so part of what you are doing is continue to raise awareness, uh, you know, establish supporting the coalition to understand both contextually what is happening what we can do to resolve it, how we can be better advocates and a state to support victims. And that by establishing the right steps, we can decrease the disparities in this work. And so one of the things that you've already mentioned around the, the test kits is that you have something that's coming up soon that I would love for you to say a little bit more about. Yeah, so we have actually, there's a couple of things going on. So I'll talk about our agenda first. A few of the things that we're still working with is around the test kit. So not only the 90 days, but we need to clean up some language around that. Right now, currently in statute, if a victim admits to a test, it is paid by the county. We want to make sure that victims and survivors don't have to pay for those medical exams. And we're asking for a state-based payer system around that. So victims and survivors won't receive the bill. So that's one, one of the things that we're working on. The other is cleaning up some language. In current statute, if they submit to a test, we are saying that we will test for STI, sexually transmitted infections. And we want to say not only will we test, but we will treat. So victims and survivors, again, won't be responsible for a payment around that. 
The last big policy agenda that we are pushing this year is that we're asking for an increase in crime victim services, our base increase. We have not received an increase in funding in over eight years. Um, and so imagine going to work and you're doing your work and you don't receive a pay raise or a COLA in eight years. Crime Victim Services has not received an increase in eight years, although we continue to invest in public safety other ways and corrections and probation and the BCA. And so we're saying that this is part of public safety and we need to be investing in that as a state. We already know that we can't arrest our way out of things. So this is for prevention dollars and also for supportive services for crime victims. So we're asking for a $25 million base increase. Again, it's been eight years for biennium for two years. And so that's, that's our big push that we're asking for. Some of our policy, public policy buffs may know that once it gets into the omnibus bill, um, it could get lost. And so we're just trying to campaign to make sure that our funding asked and what we're asking for for victim services doesn't get lost in that big package of bills. But the next exciting thing that we have going on is that our annual um, event, our annual fundraiser is happening virtually. And we have um, Roxanne Gay, who will be our keynote speaker. And then we have a community celebrity, Angela Davis, who will be moderating that conversation. So we're so excited to have these two phenomenal women that will come um, to our community, a gift to our community, um, to talk about the work, talk about um, sexual violence, um, talk about in, um, the ways that we can show up and really support community when and prevent sexual violence from happening as well. I worked at the county for a little bit over a year. It was, a, it was like a uh, special assignment where we were looking at expanding respite services for families with special needs. And I was assigned for a year to, to write a report on that. And I mentioned it because my cubicle <laughs> that I was assigned to was next to child protection. And I was not working in child protection, but I have to tell you after that year, like, I don't know what their self-care looks like, but I know it has to be necessary because just what I sort of overheard in conversations was very, very heavy. And so this is such important work, but I'm wondering, you know, in your career and in your time, and, and especially because, you know, not unlike me, you're from community, the weight of it takes in many different forms. And so how do you manage your care and those that you know report to you? How do you think about the care that is necessary to maintain in this work? Yeah, that's so important. And when I look at my um, care over the years, it definitely has changed. And I have learned um, how to listen to my body and what I need to care for myself but it's ongoing care. When I was doing direct service and working with victims of intimate partner violence or sex trafficking, we would do these safety plans. And then I decided, well, hey, I need a safety plan. I'm getting ready to go into this intense situation. You know, how do I take care of myself? I'm gonna, you know, be in a courtroom with someone who did harm to this community and this family. How am I gonna do that? So I started preparing these safety plans for myself and then started realizing 
hey, this has to be ongoing. It has to be preventive care because I can't be in the situation and then start taking care of myself. I need to take care of myself in advance in order for me to show up um, as my whole self in these situations. And so it changes. You know, today I feel like I need water. There's other days where I need movement. Um, there's days where I need my sister girls, where we just need to talk and have a good time. But I have an active plan that I work on consistently. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not doing one thing to care for myself. And that's eating a salad at lunch, making a phone call, listening to music. You know, staff walked in today. I have my music playing loud. I have a candle in my office if I need to light a candle for someone. So it is a consistent effort. I think last week I seen something that ran across my social media that said there's not enough yoga and meditation in the world that can help me deal with all the things that I have to deal with on a daily basis. But there is enough love for myself that I can do to help me show up and be motivated and consistent in the work that I do. So it's not one thing I have to, you know, I need a vacation. How I promote that with staff is that we have frank conversations about how are you doing? How, how are you taking care of yourself? I, when I'm approving time cards, I'm looking to see how much time people have. It's like, oh, you got a lot of vacation time. What is your plan? And then I make recommendations. Hey, it might be slow in January or excuse me, not January, in July. It might be slow in July. Maybe you want to take every Friday off. How do I help you arrange taking that time off? The best practice for people that are in admin is having five consistent days off. Yeah. You know, how do we offer that? We also had Dr. Joy Lewis that um, came in so we could create our personal um, orange theory plan around uh, radical self-care we are doing book club with another coalition that works on intimate partner violence, their board, our board and staff. We are reading Resmond Minikin's My Grandmother's Hands and doing the workbook attached to that. So again, it's constant revisiting over and over again. What are we doing? How are we taking care of ourselves? And then in our organization, we have to build in wellness. Like how much PTO are we offering? How many benefits are we offering? How um, professional development, if people feel like they're skilled and competent, then that's wellness as well. So reminding folks, hey, you got professional development, Dallas. I seen this training. Would you be interested in taking that? And then collectively learning together, bringing again people in to train us. So it is a whole strategy that's incorporated in how I supervise how my staff supervises staff, our strategic plan. It has to be written into that plan. So we have measurements that we're, I'm saying, hey, this is what we're, what we're doing. We're also looking at our environment. We're working remotely, but there's times that we're in space as well. So is our environment conducive to well-being? There's a lot of things that we do. And it's, again, it's ongoing. It's just not one thing. It is um, a daily practice of self-care. You know, I have I've said, and I know my team has heard me say, and I've said it, you know, at conferences or whatever, is that, you know, my, my line has been leave no benefits behind. We talk about pay equity. We talk about a number of things. And when you look at total compensation, 
there are a lot of people that are leaving the benefit of vacation behind. You're, you're essentially giving back money, right? Giving back time that really is for you and your wellness to be replenished. And we know that we don't make our best decisions when we're tired, when we are stressed, when we have our own trauma, that we actually need to step away and get to that balcony time, as Ron Heifetz uh, describes in his book, Leadership on the Line. You got to get to the balcony um, so that you can see from a different angle so that you can come back refreshed and, and have the strategies in place that you need to sustain the next, the, the next, you know, the leg of the race. Um, right. And often those of us that are in the work, we're, we're not just holding sort of the burden of that responsibility, but also sometimes we become the hero in the story and we feel like we can't take a break because yeah. if I'm not there, it won't get done. I do uh, recommend to people to be really, really thoughtful because the work just continues to feel, in my opinion, heavier and heavier, particularly as we get exposed to so much in so many different ways, whether it's it's news or social media or direct stories of people that we build around um, that tell us the stories of impact that they have and we, and we hold that. So I really appreciate sort of the intentionality and the thoughtfulness um, that you sort of laid out and I think that's the point is that self-care can look however you need it to look for you, but be intentional. I would agree. And the other conversation that I'm having with staff is called ethical self-care. Say more about that. A little bit about ethical self-care. It's like it is the practice of showing up your best self to do the work, especially if you're working with people that um, have complex trauma. And so if I'm not taking good care of myself, I'm showing up in ways that I can't center that person that I'm working with. I'm ethically responsible because I've taken on this job to take care of myself so I can show up the best ways that I can do the work that I do with people that are have experienced complex trauma. You know, as you said, you I can't be tired, overwhelmed, or what we call fried and crispy, and then be able to do good work with someone that really is depending on me to provide them the resources they need. So on their path and their journey of wellness, I can't lift up my staff or others around me if I'm just not showing up in the best possible way. And that fluctuates. It's not the same all the time, but if you're consistent in your self-care, you can be really consistent about how you show up. You also have mentioned quite a few names. So you grew up in Rondo. I grew up on the north side. I have family in Rondo. I have family in the north or south side as well. But the Hickmans, you know, shout out to Kadar and Robin. You mentioned Resma. You got Dr. Joy. Dr. Brittany lives up the street from me. So we have all of these folks that are from community that have generational roots here. And Often we are working in, in neighborhoods that are being described by being under-resourced and, and needing things. But we have this emergence of so much talent that continues to seed seeds that, that blossom and that are supporting and they're creating infrastructure and new ways of, of leading in our community that are remarkable. Thank you so much to you and all of them for what you're contributing. But can you share what it means to sort of work where you're from in the importance of maybe what that means to you? You know, I think that when I think of the Rondo community, there is kind of this vibration 
this vibration that is about the community. It's it's about the soul of that community and the foundation and our ancestors that have uh, set that foundation and community. So for me to work within community or with people that I've known for many years or grew up in community, it gives me that extra kind of foundation, that extra backbone that I need. So when I'm a small organization working with big systems that might not, that might be a little grumpy about what we're proposing and what we're doing, I need all of that support. I need that expertise in order to continue to say, I'm going to take a deep breath. And I know that, you know, yesterday was hard, but those connections um, give me that support that I need to move on. They're an email, a phone call away, a conversation, a reflection on an old conversation. It's like, oh, that's right. That, you know, we can do this. We can make that happen. I've just seen community rise up in so many different ways to make change happen. Sometimes people ask me, like, don't you just ever feel like nothing will change? And it's like, no, I come from a community that I know that change is possible. I've seen that on a regular basis and and up close and alive. So I know that change can happen. Is it hard? Yeah, but it's not impossible. Let's let's go down that thread because I am often in conversations of like, when are we ever going to see change? When when are we going to see impact? Like we just keep pumping money and we're not seeing it. I come from the opposite end of like, I see something that I find hopeful and inspiring every day. And I think it depends on how you're looking at change. If you're looking at it from a population level, I mean, it can feel like a lot. But I think when you're looking at it by family, by individual, by community, Um, When you're looking at young people you used to work with that are now leading in things and you know the investments that you made or that were made in them and their development, whether or not it was in the neighborhood center or in the school or in the church or on that that football field, basketball, music, you know, all of that stuff, right? The, The trip to D.C. that we all pitched in to get them to. What would you say about how you identify what is impactful? So it's all of the things. It's the big system change. It is like we got that we have that bill passed. Like there is funding coming from people who really need funding. And then it's the small things. Like you said, this week I'm celebrating like two people who have really been struggling to get jobs and receive jobs. It's like we're celebrating that. We're celebrating um, that we were able to influence if it's a letter of recommendation or if it's a you know, if it's employment at our organization, we're celebrating those things. So it is those small individual things that we see as well. I really believe it's all of that. It's just not the big wins because they don't happen all the time, but it's those little wins that people are successful and they're working towards their healing journey, whatever that may be. Do you think that we, like we as a sector, do a good job at communicating our impact? Oh, that's a good question because there is um, a fine line in communicating impact and exploiting folks' stories. And so we have to really show up in ways where we are sharing a narrative and telling a story in a way that's not harmful, that's conscious. So do we do a good job at that? Sometimes we do, and then other times I think that we might be part harming folks. Um, in the way that we're using their stories as well. 
For an example, we've done the traditional fundraisers that you have people come and share their stories, which is hard. And I know that people want want that impact. They want a, the heartstring tug. And so how do we how do we do that? But then also, even when we're having people testify, we want someone impact that has been impacted and we're asking them to testify in front of legislators that don't look like them, that don't come from communities that they come from, may not have had the experience, but we want that person to tell that story because we know that traditionally that's how we get bills passed. And so I think that there is a balance and we're always checking ourselves around our values as an organization. And if we can do the work without having someone tell their story in ways that could be add to the harm to them, then we'll do that. We also know that sometimes telling stories is a person's healing journey That's right. um, as well. And so there is a delicate balance of, you know, telling the story and not causing harm in the way that we're, we're doing that. Do you have this conversation at the governance level? Yes, we definitely do. And what is what does that look like? Have there been ahas? Because there's such different roles that we have right between board and staff and community and folks that have been impacted. And um, I'm smiling about that because I remember a board member and we had the conversation and I just remember that person circling back again, like trying to use another angle. And it's like we're, we can't do that. Like we can't tell our stories in that way. But this is the way that we can tell the story. This would be appropriate for us to share in this way. And so there has been, but I think that right now, for me personally, my board understands that. Um, And we have board members that don't wanna do additional harm to folks, but it has been ongoing conversation around how we uh, do fundraising. And we're a little different. We don't do direct service. We're doing this broader thing. And we're asking people to invest in system change and prevention work, which is concepts that are a little bit harder for folks to grasp and understand versus having someone that has been directly impacted and has received services. We're bringing in programs. For instance, with COVID, like our organization was instrumental with getting our shelters like PPE when we couldn't get PPE. And so having programs come in and talk about those type of things but the fundraising around that is a little bit more challenging versus someone who's doing direct service. So, you know, systems work is a lot less predictable. Like, you know what you're trying to change, but there's a lot of factors that depend on whether or not that bill moves forward. It takes more time to actually see the outcome and the impact sometimes of systems work versus the way that we have traditionally described impact has been we help so many households get so many yeah. things uh, you know, and we work so many hours. Is that is that sort of what you're saying? That is a, yeah, a clear path when you're serving in direct service, but systems change work. The timelines are less predictable. Uh, the timelines are less predictable, and I think the stories that we're telling are different stories versus the traditional way that we um, tell stories to raise funds. So we could have a survivor come in and tell her story and say, if you change this law, I wouldn't have experienced this. Like, if you change this law, my court case would have not taken two years because my um, kit was returned within 30 or 90 days instead of eight months. 
So we could have people tell stories in that way. But do we want, you know, is that aligned with our values as an organization or someone to come and share such an intimate story with, you know, someone who would be interested in donating money? You mentioned COVID. That was certainly not an easy period for anyone. For some, it was very challenging as they lost lost ones and rest those souls um, in that pandemic. But you were leading an organization and leading organizations are not easy. So we've talked about the work. We talk about what you do, the heaviness of that. How has leading the organization changed, if at all, since we've experienced the pandemic in 2020? One of the things that changed is that we're working remotely and that wasn't necessarily an option or we considered it to be as effective. So seeing that change, but hiring folks if it's called to reducing staff virtually or online, those are challenges. Onboarding someone is challenging. Supervising someone that may be having some challenges in their life virtually, there was a way that um, we had to bring humanity virtually. You know, how do you connect people? How do you connect with people? Um, when I came in, I think I was in my position for three months and then COVID hit. And I thought I knew who I was as a leader. And I came into this organization and it changed everything. Like I would have never thought about hiring or supervising virtually. We got to do that in person. We need to have some, some contact. And so it really upped my skills in how to be intentional. I still give that person the same attention. I try not to be answering emails, working on other things, but making direct eye contact and being plugged in as much as possible. Also administratively, it's like we were constantly rethinking how we work, like approving things, DocuSign, all of those things to make sure that you're meeting with compliance um, as well. I think the last piece I would say about my leadership, you know, again, um, I agree. It has just really been hard and devastating for a staff, but growing that capacity for folks that were struggling, that were taking care of children, that were homeschooling, that needed to show up for work and then caring for themselves or others that had COVID. We also had an election at that time and the murder of George Floyd. And so really centering and uplifting, like who are we as an organization? What do we value? Our race equity work. We needed to not just say it, but be about it and do it in very different ways. I say I've grown as a leader and my capacity to kind of navigate challenging times and things that I would have never have had to exercise that muscle if we weren't um, experiencing a COVID and also the murder of George Floyd. George Floyd, we're coming up on the third year, which is pretty unbelievable. It feels like in some some days that it was just yesterday. Um, it feels so immediate and so present. I don't assume that it's impacted everyone in the way it's impacted me. How did that impact you? You know, I lived a couple of blocks away from George Floyd Square. And so it impacted me, but I also had staff that lived in those neighborhoods that were impacted by the, the riots that were happening. And I'm a mother and a wife of, you know, adults, a mother of two adult Black men, and then also um, the um, wife and partner of a Black male. And so it it was 
it was devastating to my family personally, and then also to um, the folks that were working within my organization. How it's impacted me, it really has been kind of this catalyst of we're not we're not doing enough, we're not showing up in the right ways, and how do we right size um, that? And then there was the event that occurred, and then there was um, the murder that occurred. Then there was the response to the community response to that murder. Um, there was the trials. And then there was the outcome of the trials as well. And so every step of the way, it was really um, emotionally, it, it was really emotional to have to work and to show up in spaces where I was being personally impacted. And yeah. so sometimes I would be on Zoom with systems because we're also working with systems. So we had conversations with our staff about, do we continue to do this work the way that we're doing it? Do we do this work at all? Is this a priority? And we really came up with a couple of um, agreements around that is that we need to be showing up as advocates um, within those spaces. We don't have the, um, I'm going to say privilege of stepping away from those tables because change is going to happen regardless of we're there or not. So we need to be at those tables, making sure that change is happening in the right way. But we will not um, show up in ways, our places that were disrespected, not listened to and not heard. We're not going to do that. So there was a lot of work that we had to do around it. Yeah, I just, you know, I always like to remind folks, there's like doing the work and then there's like the leaders of the organizations, right? And that you're leading while you're also going through the same thing. And often folks are like, you don't understand. And you're like, oh, boy, <laughs> like maybe if you only knew how much I understood or like I'm right. in the same boat, I just can't act always like I'm in the same feeling because I have so much responsibility. And I, you know, I just want to continue to sort of share the story of the organizational leaders and that, especially when you don't have a lot of distance from the issue, right, that you're right in community, you live right there, you're going through it. I'm sure you heard the noise. The, the helicopters, yeah. gas cans. Yeah. And, you know, when there's snipers on the roofs of the buildings that you live in. And there was this time or this space where I just had to show up vulnerable. I was in a system meeting, you know, a night where we were up all night because there were thoughts that um, there were people riding in the neighborhood trying to do harm to folks. And so part of a community watch. And I had to say in that meeting, I'm not okay today. I'm here, but I'm not okay today. And this yeah. is how it's impacting me and be okay with that because sometimes we are expected to show up and just stuff everything. And it was like, that wasn't the day I could do it. Yeah. And, and just had to put that out in space. And I'm not asking for your sympathy. I'm not asking for you to stop the meeting so we can talk about what I'm going through. What well, all I'm saying to you is that I'm here and I'm present, but I might not be fully activated in, in what's going on here. And maybe next week or next month, I'll show up in a different way. But today, this is how I'm showing up. Yeah, I mean, I had a full breakdown in one of our Zoom meetings and we had a staff that presented. It was right around this time period, but my mother was also ill and, and headed into hospice. And I had been just holding all of it. And for whatever reason, the staff shared her story. And then I was next on the agenda. 
And I just started sobbing and like, I don't really do that. Right. And so, I mean, I surprised myself. I couldn't get it together. I didn't want nobody asking me nothing. I just wanted to lay down. I appreciate you checking on me. It's all the things I can't even articulate it, but I do think, and what I appreciate about this conversation is that, you know, sometimes when you're going through it, you don't recognize the need for self-care. And I think that's why if you're intentional and have it as a practice, and you're doing something every day, it probably won't pile up, <laughs> hopefully, in the way that it did on, on for me that, that particular week. Yeah, and I'm so sorry to hear about your mother, but I agree with you. I usually, I tell some folks in my life, it's like, if I was drowning, I probably wouldn't know it right away because I'd be talking myself out of it. Like, I'm okay. I can get, get to the other side. It's all right. <laughs> I'll make it. And I think I do that to myself when I show up to work and then I get into a meeting. It's like, no, you're not okay. You probably should have called in today. You need to rest. There's a lot going on. But I but I do a lot of, you know, talking myself into like you can show up, you get you can do this. I like to just shed a little light on what's happening underneath the the face and the and the makeup and the appearances because I think it's important for us to be transparent in leadership where it becomes hard and that in that transparency, hopefully we're giving people permission to take breaks and ask for what they need. You know, as we close, I'm wondering, you know, what's what's bringing you hope? Yeah, I think our young folks definitely bring us hope. The people that are coming after us, that that definitely brings us hope. You know, I have to have faith and hope. I can't do this work if I didn't believe that change was possible. The other thing that brings me hope is that we're talking about mental health in the Black community in different ways. And so that's part of our regular conversation, normalizing that sometimes it's okay not to be okay and that it's okay to get help um, when you're not okay, and that help, and what does that help look like? So that brings me hope that we're having those conversations as well. One of the things that we're doing in community is having honest conversations about sexual violence, sex trafficking. That's kind of a, a word that I know through my career that we weren't talking about within community, within the Black community, and that we're we're recognizing that harms to women and to children are something that we need to address right away. We've had conversations about R. Kelly and how long it took for us to address that within our community, Bill Cosby as well. And you know, we can have conversations. It can be this and that. We can say that those are creatives that contribute to our community. And also there are folks that did harm to our community um, as well. We are a complex community and we know how to solve complex problems. It is just not just one thing. And so I would say that I'm hopeful about how we're addressing that in community. And I'm also know that we have a lot more work to do to maintain and prioritize safety of um, Black women and girls. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that's good, two good, very good examples. And I think about over the years, the encounters that I know that I came through as a child and people would say, be careful of this person or that person. And it was known 
but those people still maintained in role. We have come too far to not address the harms that have been done in our community, that sweeping it under the rug does not, in fact, make it better. Those people that are perpetrating also have been typically harmed and that we can stop some of the cycles of violence if we're just finding more places for people to talk about what they're experiencing and getting the help, the resources, and have the systems then to support them towards recovery. Very important. And we know that even if people are arrested, those citizens return back to community. So what are we doing to support folks that are coming back to community and they will no longer do harm as well? Is so much that has happened around sexual violence in our community has been weaponized against us, has been weaponized against Black males. And so I understand how we want to be cautious and make sure that is this really true and factual, but we can't wait as long as we, we have waited 30 years is too long for us to try to gather the evidence and recognize that we have someone that's really harming the community and harming folks in our um, community. You know, you mentioned declining funding and no increases COLA. So we're at a critical inflection point. And so help me understand both how its funding mechanism works and then what's at risk so that the listening audience can understand. So there has been a deficit for funding crime victim services from the federal government. When the previous administration was in, a lot of our crime victims' fundings come from white-collar crime. So like the tobacco industry, their fines were put into victim service funds. Volkswagen had a large suit that was put into victim service funds. Well, our previous administration was not prosecuting white-collar crimes. Um, the funds weren't going into that pot. And so we have a deficit that has not been replenished. We're really at a critical point. If we don't receive the money from the federal government, if they don't make up that deficit or put something in place to make up that deficit, the funding for crime victim services will continue to decrease. And then if we don't get that raise that we're looking from from the state um, local government, we're going to really be in a position where we're not going to be able to keep shelters open. We've had a couple of shelters that closed and we're not going to be competitive. People are going to find jobs in other fields because we're requiring folks to have degrees, advanced degrees, and we're not paying that type of money in order to sustain those type of positions. And we also work with our philanthropy organizations, but our work as a coalition is such a specific niche. Um, we don't fall into priority areas um, quite often. It's both niche and it feels like it also is a responsibility of government to make sure that its people are doing okay. And so I think that there's always a, a balance in philanthropy between is this something we should be funding and could we fund at the scale that's needed or should we be thinking about government's role in terms of that funding? It's always a very interesting balance. I agree with that. And I also think that funding from the government is just so very specific that they're saying that you are going to do this specific program for this amount of time. And so there's no flexibility if you're trying to get well-being into your organization, trying to promote um, people having time off or sabbaticals or, or education, 
that's not going to come out of that government funding because they're just so very prescribed in what you can do with that funding. So that's why we do fundraisers like our AWARE event that's coming up on the 27th. And then we also have to work with our um, philanthropy organizations as well to get some of those general op funds so we can do some of this work to support staff. Fair point. Thank you again, Artika Roller. If you want to find out more information about any of this conversation that we had today, go to M-N-C-A-S-A, Mincasa. Mincasa.org. Thank you so much for being with me. It was a pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and the work that you've been doing in community for many, many years. 